one of the great purposes of any religion is to explain why we die and what happens next. Judaism is no exception. On this episode, we will discuss the Jewish view of death and dying. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Death is the great equalizer. We will all die eventually. How we die, how we ritualize death, and what happens after we die are vital topics in Judaism. We will discuss these issues today. At the end of the podcast, we will talk about ethical issues facing modern Jews, such as autopsies, assisted suicide, and cremation. As a person approaches death, he or she transitions into one of two halachic categories, goseis or terefa. A goseis is one whose death is imminent, within a day or two. We are to do everything possible to make that person comfortable, including pain reduction. We do not encourage heroic measures, such as using life support machines, if the result would be prolonging the inevitable death by a few hours or days. The only exceptions to this thought would be to allow family members to say goodbye or to allow for the person to donate his or her organs. Even so, we allow the person to die peacefully with family surrounding him or her, if possible. The other condition is terefa. Terefa means that a doctor has placed a time limit on a person's life, such as saying, you have six months to live. During this time, the trefa is exempt from following halakha if such adherence would cause discomfort or pain. As Maimonides states, we t- treat a trefa as if he or she is already dead. In modern times, we encourage a trefa and his or her family to choose hospice care for one's final days. Hospice provides wonderful medical and spiritual care not just for the patient, but for the family as well. As a person is about to die, a rabbi or family member reads a special prayer called the Vidui, the confessional, on behalf of the person. The Vidui is an acknowledgement of a person's sins and a prayer for forgiveness, modeled after the Vidui prayers recited on Yom Kippur. After reciting the Vidui, we say the Shema just before the person dies. As noted when we talked about birth, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai alone, is what we whisper in the ear of a baby at birth and an adult at death, the first and last things that a person hears in his or her life. In olden times, people always died at home. Without the benefit of the modern funeral home, it was imperative that a dead body be buried without delay. A decomposing corpse presented both a physical and spiritual danger to the survivors. Jewish law stipulates that a body must be buried within 24 hours of death, if at all possible. The only exceptions to this rule, which is still in effect today, is that a person cannot be buried on Shabbat or another major holiday. Also, 
we can delay a burial so that close family can travel and be present at the funeral. Before we continue, I must mention something quite important, pre-planning one's funeral. While this is not specifically a Jewish custom, it is one of the greatest gifts that a person can give to his or her survivors. I worked as a pre-planning counselor for several years by way of disclosure, so I know from experience that this spares the family from both pain and unnecessary cost at the time of death. Please talk with your funeral home and cemetery of choice now when we are healthy. Don't leave this burden to your children. When a person dies, we usually call a funeral home. Not all funeral homes know how to prepare a body for Jewish funeral. Every community, no matter the size, should have at least one funeral home capable of handling a Jewish funeral and burial. As I mentioned earlier, time is of the essence. Even if the burial will not be the next day or possibly the same day, we try not to wait unnecessarily. Often when the body arrives at a funeral home, it comes with instructions not to embalm. One of the primary principles of a Jewish funeral is that we do not mutilate a corpse. Embalming is considered mutilation, as is conducting an autopsy, except to determine cause of death if it will bring comfort to a family, or of course, if the person was the victim of a crime and an autopsy can bring a killer to justice. A specially trained group of Jews called a Hevra Kedisha, a holy burial society, prepares the body for burial. Men prepare men, women prepare women. In silence, the Hevra Kedisha washes the body and then dresses the body in tachrichin, white linen burial garments. Men are also clothed in a talit, a prayer shawl, but with the tassels removed and with the kippah, a head covering. Once the body is washed and dressed, the Hevra Kedisha places the body into an unpolished wooden casket that has no metal features. The top is not usually hinged. Rather, wooden pegs secure it to the casket itself. With such time constraints, there is no public viewing, as in many Christian traditions. And without embalming, it is also not safe for a public viewing of the body. Also, no flowers are permitted at a Jewish funeral. Using an all-wood casket, washing and dressing all Jews the same, along with the ban on flowers, shows the starkness of death and that we are all equal, no matter our position while alive. Furthermore, it is customary to leave the family in peace prior to the funeral so that they can plan the service and have time to mourn privately. The formal mourners are parents, spouse, siblings, and children. There are also very specific rules regarding a Jewish cemetery. A traditional Jewish cemetery must be bordered on at least three sides by bushes, fences, trees, or another physical barrier. These barriers delineate the boundaries of the cemetery. Only Jews may be buried in a traditional Jewish cemetery. Furthermore, the grounds themselves must be consecrated. The prayers recited at a cemetery dedication show the intent of the community to bury their dead in this designated area and not use the land for any other purpose. Customarily, 
the first purchase that a Jewish community makes when coming to a new area is a cemetery. We can pray and learn almost anywhere, but we need consecrated land to bury our dead. This purchase indicates that the new Jewish community is a permanent one. Furthermore, a Jewish cemetery can only accept wooden caskets, as we will see later, cremation and suicide are frowned upon in Jewish tradition. The funeral service itself can take place in a funeral home, a chapel, a sanctuary, or other location prior to going to the graveside. Or we can conduct the entire service at the graveside. It depends upon the wishes of the family and local custom. Either way, we begin the funeral service by tearing one's clothing. When Jacob learned that Joseph had supposedly died, he tore his clothes. Since then, we have torn a piece of clothing upon hearing of a death. Most Jews place a black ribbon called a Kriya ribbon on their suit coat and, or dress and then tear it. Kriya meaning tear. We wear this Kriya ribbon for a week following burial. We then begin the service by reciting certain psalms, such as Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Following these introductory psalms and readings, the rabbi and sometimes others offer a hesped, a eulogy. The eulogy is not a person's resume. Instead, it speaks to the good that that person did during his or her life, the person's love of family and love of Judaism. The rabbi almost always offers the hesped. Recently, though, many families request that a loved one or two also say some words during the service. This is, again, a matter of preference and is actually a newer feature of the Jewish funeral service. Following the hesped, we recite a prayer called El Malay Rachamim, God full of mercy. This is the memorial prayer that we say at death and at memorial services. If we're in a chapel or the like, we now travel to the cemetery for burial after chanting El Malay Rachamim. At the cemetery, there is a brief service concluding with the Kaddish, a prayer praising God's goodness and justice. Some rabbis require the casket to be lowered prior to this part of the service, or if the entire service is at the graveside, then at the beginning of the entire service. Other rabbis lower the casket after the mourner's kaddish. Customs vary between rabbis and communities. Also, Jews fill the grave after lowering the casket, either just to cover the top or even to surface level, depending on custom and stream of Judaism and we fill the grave either at the beginning of the service or at the end, depending upon when the casket is lowered. Family members begin the shoveling process. The act symbolizes the starkness and finality of death. Before we start shoveling, though, the rabbi spills a few tablespoons of dirt from Israel over the body or casket. Doing so testifies to the Jewish belief in the immortality of the soul, and that when the Messiah finally comes, corpses will roll to Jerusalem and then be reunited with their respective souls. When the casket is lowered, it must touch the earth. This hastens the process of decomposition. The body is restored to the earth. If the cemetery requires a vault, we place a bottomless concrete liner on the grave, either inverted or open to the top and bottom. Then if open, 
the cemetery places the top over the liner after the service. We do not use sealed metal vaults. This would violate the practice of the body returning to the earth. The dust must return to the earth. After the burial service concludes, the guests form two facing lines so that the immediate family can walk between them directly to their vehicles. The cemetery is not a place to socialize or to receive greetings. That is done at the home following the service. When the family arrives at the house of mourning, they are required to first light a candle called a Shiva candle that will burn for seven days. Shiva meaning seven in Hebrew. Afterwards, the family sits down to a meal called the Suuda Havra'ah, the meal of consolation. Customarily, they begin by eating hard-boiled eggs, a symbol of life and renewal. And by being forced to eat something, especially protein, the excuse that I'm too upset to eat goes away. For the next seven days and nights, we recite daily prayers often in that home. This is called a Shiva service, when family and friends come over to pray with and console the family. It is also important to note that during the week of Shiva, we provide for the family's needs. They should not have to cook, clean, or go to work for the week. Also, mourners typically do not wear shoes, the mirrors are covered, and men do not shave. Mourners bathe only to stay clean, not for relaxation. Also, we do not watch television, listen to music, or partake of any other entertainment during Shiva, including going online. Once Shiva is over, the mourners stand up and take a symbolic walk around the block. Not only do they get some needed fresh air, but walking outside marks the end of Shiva. For the next 30 days, called Shloshim, for the Hebrew number 30, Mourners go back to work, school, and the like. However, they still should not partake of any entertainment, such as going to a movie or out to dinner. After Shloshim, the following 11 months called Shana, which means year in Hebrew, is a time to continue one's re-entry into the world. During these 11 months following the death, the mourners are expected to come to the synagogue at least on Shabbat, to recite Kaddish and participate as mourners. After these 11 months, life returns to normal. Why 11 months? The Jewish view is that almost all souls rise to heaven to await the Olam Haba, the world to come. But it is not an immediate process. It can take as long as a year. These souls rest in Gehinom, a mystical place that in Christian thought became hell. By reciting Kaddish, we figuratively escort the soul up to heaven. By reciting Kaddish only for 11 months, we assume that our loved one was not so wicked as to require the full year. For the truly wicked, the Hamans and Hitlers among us, their souls cannot go to heaven. They are annihilated. On the anniversary of a death, we typically light what is called a Yartzeit candle and go to the synagogue to recite Kaddish. Yartzeit is a Yiddish term that means the anniversary of one's death. And four times a year, on Yom Kippur and on the last days of the pilgrimage festivals, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, we recite the Yizkor memorial service. In a moment, we will talk about some ethical issues surrounding death and dying. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this 
is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Before we return to our discussion of conversion, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Please remember to review and rate the episode on Apple, Spotify, or whatever service you are using. And I am pleased to announce that we are now on Facebook podcasts with a weekly Facebook live recording session every Thursday morning that will start next week. You can get an advanced peek at next week's episode, unedited and with unintended commentary. Just go to the Torah for Christians page for the Facebook live session. Also, please go back and listen to previous episodes if you have not done so already. We have covered a lot of material so far, and I look forward to what is to come. Let's go back to talking about the Olam Haba, which I mentioned in passing just a few minutes ago. Judaism has long believed in an afterlife. In fact, much of early Christian thought about death and resurrection came from contemporary rabbinic Judaism, which had already developed these concepts well before Jesus was born. Judaism answers the question of what happens after I die by stating that if we do mitzvot in this world, we will earn the right to live in the olam haba, the world to come. If we have not quite earned this privilege, we are sent to Gehenna, the purgatory where our souls are purified in advance of entering paradise. Gehinom, the valley of Hinom outside of Jerusalem, is the basis for the Christian concept of hell. We do not know what that world will be exactly. All we can hope for is that the Messiah will usher in this era and resurrect the dead. Then God will return souls to their bodies. One can rightfully ask, what about organ donation? All streams of Judaism agree that donating one's organs is a positive mitzvah. This means that if a person is capable, he or she should sign an organ donation card so that we can save other lives after their death. After donating one's organs, a body may be buried in a Jewish cemetery, even though the body has been dissected. After all, the preservation of life is our highest priority and overrides the prohibition against mutilating the body. And besides, it's the, the deceased person's final gift to the world is to donate healthy organs. It is also permitted for Jews to receive donated organs. It's not always a given in many traditions. This allows for everything from having a blood transfusion to a heart transplant. Which brings us to the topic of cremation. Like embalming, cremation is considered mutilation. Never in the entire Hebrew Bible is a Hebrew, Israelite, or Jew cremated. Also, in the world to come, when souls are looking to reunite with their bodies, they cannot do so if the body has been cremated. Historically, Jews have never condoned cremation, especially after the horrors of the Holocaust. This may be changing at least in the United States. Among certain segments of the Jewish community, cremation is becoming more accepted. The reasons are complex. One, there is a land use argument. Caskets take up more space than urns. 
plus the cost of cremation is considerably less than a full-service funeral. It is also wrongly assumed that a cremation is more environmentally friendly. The energy used in a cremation is far more than that used in a traditional burial. Second, families do not live in the same community anymore. With increased transience, it is hard for families to visit a cemetery, and urn is much easier to transport. Third, intermarried and unaffiliated Jews are more prone to emulate greater society. And since cremation is the preferred option for many, if not most people these days, they tend to choose cremation. And finally, rabbis are more willing to officiate at a cremation memorial service, especially among the reform movement, although Orthodox rabbis will not. The primary purpose of a funeral service is not to mourn the dead, although that is important. The primary purpose is instead to comfort the mourners. It does not matter if it is a burial or cremation. Mourners still need to be acknowledged, cared for, and loved. Before we conclude, let's take a minute to talk about suicide. Simply put, suicide violates Jewish law. In essence, a suicide cannot be buried in a Jewish cemetery. However, there is a major exception to this rule. In the spirit of compassion, and to bring both comfort and closure to the family of a suicide, we assume two things about a person who has committed suicide. One, that shortly before death, that person realized the error of his or her ways and tried to save himself or herself, but failed. This means that the death was not a deliberate suicide, but rather an accidental death. Two, we also assume that anyone so determined to commit suicide must have had an underlying condition that made this person mentally ill. If a person is mentally ill, he or she is incapable of rational decision-making. Hence, a person literally was not of right mind when he or she committed suicide. With these two understandings, the suicide burial ban is universally lifted, and a suicide can be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Compassion trumps law. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. Please remember to rate and review this and previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, Facebook, or other streaming services. And speaking of Facebook, we have a Torah for Christians page and I hope that you would like it. Next week, we will change gears. We're done with the life cycle, and we'll discuss the relation of Judaism and Thanksgiving. It's a fun topic, quite a pleasant change from discussing death and dying. I hope that you join in. Have a wonderful week, and remember, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together as one. Till we meet again, I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Mm-hmm.